So let's start with Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll just start with the whole chunk of Scripture here. And the reason we're taking this particular chunk, in the original language, it's all one sentence. And it is a beast of a sentence. Uh, It's even kind of tough when it's broken into two sentences. Uh, So in the original, it's just one sentence. It's a lot to read, and there's so much packed into this that we can discuss that we're going to spend our class time now, the sermon after this, and then the sermon after lunch. All of these will be aimed at different sections of this particular passage. So let's start reading in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So you can see why, probably just from a quick reading of the passage, you can see why we need to spend a good amount of time discussing the things here. There's really three main things we want to focus in on today, which works out well because there's three different times for us to study. So this actually works out pretty well. So you'll notice at the beginning, you have the idea that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. If you back up just a little bit in chapter 4, the he there is Jesus himself. So we're reading about, at the beginning of the chapter, we're talking about the seven ones, the one elements in the church, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with those. We can refresh them from the beginning of the chapter. You have, let's see, in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, as you were called, and the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, And in all, and notice in verse 7, grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So when you get to verse 11 here, Jesus has given something to the church. And he's given these five different groups. He's given the prophets, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Well, why has he given those to the church? Well, it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's us. So those positions in the church, and we'll talk more about them in the final discussion today, but essentially we're talking about the scriptures with the apostles and the prophets as it functions in the church today, and then in these roles that continue on in the church today, the shepherds, the evangelists, and the teachers. Their job is to equip us all to do the work of ministry so that we can build up the body of Christ as we work towards fitting together in verse 16. And then when you move into this next section in verse 13, you find out that We've been given these gifts, and you'll notice that little word at the beginning of verse 13, until. That means these things are supplied, this work continues until this happens in verse 13. So we're looking at something that's out in the future of the church, a moment that we're going to identify later in the sermon as, well, the second coming of Christ. We're talking about the resurrection. We're talking about when the church has reached its fullness and its completion. And since this is a class session, I'm assuming it's fine to ask for comments and have a little bit of discussion. Does anybody else have anything 
different in your translation in verse 13. So we have, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, does anyone have something different than mature manhood after that? Anybody? Or does everybody have mature manhood in your translation? Okay, unto a perfect man. So literally in the original it says exactly that. It says a perfect man. In most translations, well, they're assuming that that word for perfect, it also means complete or mature. So they're assuming that what Paul means is he wants you to grow into complete maturity because of what happens in the next verse. And this is very interesting to me. So that, or in order that, we may no longer be children. So there's the contrast between mature manhood or complete maturity and now you see the opposite end of the spectrum being a child and we're going to spend some time talking about that word here in just a second but what we want to emphasize here to start with is actually the third thing on the list so we're actually going to move backwards through the text mainly because of what we're about to see there is a strong emphasis in this text on no longer being children. Certainly he's telling you the church has been equipped with these gifts that Christ has given us. We need to take advantage of those gifts. There's some responsibility for the folks in those leadership positions to function properly so that the rest of us can function properly. There's also this great hope set before us about where the church is headed, where we're all heading as a unit together. And typically we think about maybe salvation and the judgment day is very individual and it's just about me and my relationship to God. Well, it certainly is, but we find out here that there's something that the church collective is headed towards as well. There's something that we're all building towards. So as we fit together now, this is not just something to be done in the present. It's something that's anticipating the resurrection, something that's going to be completed. We're still going to be fit together in some ways after the resurrection. And we'll see that uh, later as we do the sermon. But for now, I want to notice the emphasis on the beginning of this verse. And we want to spend some time talking about what it means to be a child in this passage. Basically, we're going to see it as spiritual immaturity. But what exactly does that mean? Is this just some general scale that you can slide on, whether you're immature and, well, now I've figured out this particular discipline, so I'm sliding further, but then the next day I'm... So do we just slide around, or is this a particular thing that we're called to move away from? But either way, the emphasis of the passage lies on these little words at the beginning. So that, or maybe your translation says, in order that, or something similar to it. But remember, in the original, all the way from verse 11 down to verse 16 is one sentence. It's a complex sentence. It's kind of hard to figure out what's going on here. But the best guesses in the best commentaries right now are going to tell you that the emphasis of this whole thing, even though we're talking about the resurrection, even though we're talking about the present state of the church with its many roles and ministries, it looks like the emphasis is on you need to get away from this. You have these gifts. We're growing on to this point in the future. But we want to be very clear that Paul says you have these gifts so that you can no longer be children. So Christ himself has seen fit to give us the gifts of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers so that we can get out of whatever this state of being a child looks like. 
So as we're going to see in a minute, it's not just something to prop your feet up and say, well, I'll eventually grow out of this. Because usually with immaturity, and I know um, maybe as we were younger, and we definitely deal with this a lot with the college students in Montgomery, um, this idea of, well, we have these aspects of immaturity in our life, but that's okay for now, and we'll eventually grow out of them. And we don't usually treat immaturity as a very urgent thing to repent of and change now the way we're going to behave. We see it as more of a gradual growth, and in some ways, that's absolutely right. So we're not going to push all the way back against that this morning, but we are going to find something in particular. So in the New Testament, there's about four different words that you can use for child, uh, much like we have today. You know, we've got child, kid, baby, toddler. We've got a handful of words that you could use to describe a child who might be two years old. All those would be fair game. You could maybe still get away with calling them a baby. I guess maybe depending on how they act, uh, you could get away with that. But in the New Testament, there's a very specific word that's used only of infants and very, very, it's like stage one, stage one. And that's the word here in our text that's used. So your translation might say infant, so that you may no longer be infants. So the word that's here, it gets generalized to children because most of the translations are thinking maturity versus child. That's immaturity versus maturity, and so they kind of gloss over it. But the word is very clear. It's actual infant. And so we could say, well, Paul might have just grabbed this word like we would grab any word to describe a young child. And so if we say child, toddler, baby, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. We mean the same thing either way. But what's interesting, this word only pops up, I think, six times in the New Testament. I didn't put it on the screen. There's six times this word pops up in the New Testament or in Paul's letters. And then there's four outside of that, so ten times total. Almost every single time this word appears, it's talking about metaphorically being immature. And it always seems to be aimed at stage one. So we're talking about the very beginning of the Christian faith. And we're going to look at all the passages, well, at least in Paul, in a moment, to see how this term is used. But none of the other terms for child are used this way. So you have three other words. They're always used to describe literal kids. So anytime you see an actual child or an actual baby in the text, Jesus is never described in the birth narratives with this particular Greek term. This term is reserved for talking about spiritual immaturity. And it always seems to be a very, very early stage. And what you'll find is that at least a few of the people in the church are currently in this state, which is really important to recognize. Remember that Paul has spent quite some time in the city of Ephesus. And quite a bit of time has elapsed between his visit to Ephesus and his writing of the letter. So there's a lot of people in the church that have been faithful followers of Christ, or at least they were converted to Christ several years ago by the time Paul writes this letter. And obviously we would assume there's new converts there as well, so maybe we're talking about just the new converts. But it is challenging, at least to me, to see that Christians who have been serving and who have been involved in the congregation in Ephesus, at least some of them, are identified as still in this state of spiritual immaturity. It's something they've never grown out of. So he says, let us no longer be children, implying that, well, and some of us still are. So there's certainly uh, some urgency here. And I love these two quotes. These are from uh, 
two scholars that wrote pretty good commentaries, actually really good commentaries on Ephesians. You got it's a highly dangerous condition that you can't just treat as a neutral state that will be outgrown in due course that we said a moment ago. And likewise, F.F. Bruce says something pretty similar. But he gives you a little more teeth to it. He says, this is an immaturity for which we will be held accountable once sufficient time has elapsed for us to have grown out of infancy. And you can see that a little bit in the book of Hebrews for sure. Let's go ahead and take a look at the book of Hebrews. We want to go to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to find out something here about spiritual immaturity. Would somebody mind reading Hebrews 5, 11 through 14? All right, thanks for reading that, Mackenzie. Appreciate it. So notice a couple things here. At the end of verse 13, you have that word child. Well, this is the same Greek term for child. Remember, there's a bunch of them that could have been used, but this is that same specific one that seems to always be used to talk about spiritual immaturity. And guess what word is used for mature in verse 14? The same word that's used for mature or complete or perfect over in Ephesians. So it's the exact same contrast we have here. But notice at the beginning... He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You should have grown out of this stage of spiritual immaturity, but you're still there. We, you're still having to have the milk. You're not ready to move on to the solid food. You can read that a little bit at the beginning of chapter 6 right here if you just kind of want to skim that as we're talking. We're not going to take time to dive into those. But he says we need to leave behind some of the elementary principles, not that we reject them or that we don't take them seriously anymore, but they become fundamental. They become second nature. They're just ingrained into who we are, and we're able to go deeper and deeper into Christ as we learn and mature and continue to grow. But make no mistake, stage one of spiritual growth, of spiritual maturity, absolutely has to be left with urgency. We need to be willing to take stock of ourselves and see are we in this same boat like these people here in Hebrews 5 and maybe some of the ones in the city of Ephesus? You know, just how uh, we don't want to get maybe too deep into this, but if I had to, you know, plop a dot on the spectrum, am I going to be out of, like, a, just how spiritually mature do I perceive myself to be? And then how would I even define that are some difficult questions. So let's just take a look at what spiritual immaturity looks like here in Ephesians. And then we'll zoom out and take a look at some other passages and spend the remainder of our time discussing what we see there. But notice the big problems here with being a child is that you're tossed to and fro by the waves. You're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. That seems to be the big problem with being a, well, a child here in this passage. And these terms are all unique in the New Testament. So the word that means to be tossed around, it's actually only used once in the New Testament. That word for crafty and deceitful is only used a couple times. Uh, it's a lot of odd stuff happening here in this passage. But this term for being tossed around by the waves, let's go to James chapter 1. And then we'll read the quote from Philo on the screen. You're probably already familiar with this. 
The imagery is the same. The exact words that are used are a little bit different. But the imagery here is the exact same. So can somebody, I tell you what, not just verse 5. Let's read verses, or sorry, not just verse 6. Let's read verses 5 and 6 together. Okay, thanks for reading that. So let me ask you this. We can get a little bit of discussion here in the middle. So the one who is a child is susceptible to be tossed around by the waves and driven around by the wind. Then the one who prays without faith is like a person who is driven around and tossed by the wind. What makes a person who prays without faith like someone who's tossed around on the ocean in a storm? What do you think the point behind that particular metaphor is here any thoughts I know it's early on a Sunday morning maybe to ask you to <laughs> any of you young guys you got any thoughts over there what do you think okay so you don't believe it's going to happen maybe you're very unsure there's certainly no stability there and he says when you pray you need to ask in faith without any doubting so you're solid and you're firm you know these things are going to happen so when we talk about prayer, if we pray without faith, well, maybe we have an aspect of spiritual immaturity here in James. that Maybe we don't actually trust God to be faithful to answer our prayers, whether that's in the positive or in the negative. But either way, a lack of faith here does seem to bear some similarities to what spiritual immaturity looks like. But it's this idea of being very unsure and of being maybe gullible is the right word to use here or at least very uncertain about the things of God in Ephesians, where you're subject to believe things that might sound biblical, but aren't actually Bible. And that actually, I believe, is a pretty tricky thing. This is really interesting to me, this quote from Philo. This is not Bible. Philo is a lot like Paul. He's living at the same time as Paul, but Philo never converts to Christianity. He's a Jewish scholar, and he's one of the best ones from that particular time period. So it's a picture maybe of Paul and kind of who he is and what he stands for, except Philo stays, he does not convert to Christianity, he remains Jewish for his entire life. But he's very heavily influenced by all the fancy Greek philosophy stuff that I don't understand. Uh, but he says this about idolatrous people, so people who worship idols. He says, like boats without ballast, they are forever tossed and carried here and there, never able to come to harbor or to rest securely in the roadstead of truth. So for people who are idolatrous, he says, well, they're just like these spiritually mature, just like the one in James 1. There's only a few times that imagery gets used in writings from this time period, and these are most of them. But here's what's really interesting. Philo continues writing. He says, these idolatrous people are tossed around, and in their general ignorance, they have failed to perceive even that most obvious truth, which even a witless infant knows. And would you like to guess which Greek terminology Philo is using for witless infant? Witless is not in the text. It just says infant, and the translator here adds it. It's the exact same word for child, that specific one that's rarely used. And when it is used, this, I like the reason I have it is because he goes ahead and says witless infant. So you have your witless infants and being tossed around by the waves tied together, not just in the New Testament, but also here in Philo, 
And I think that's worth thinking pretty hard about and what exactly that means. So we're not solid, basically. We're, we're vulnerable, we're unstable, but what are we susceptible to? And this is, I think, where the meat of this is going to show up. So these terms for the crafty, deceitful schemes, the bottom line here is they are planned, they are very intelligent, and they are extremely dangerous. So if you go look in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, we're talking about the schemes or the planning of Satan himself. And then when you read later in Ephesians, when you talk about the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes, or some of the older translations say the wiles, basically the, the careful planning of Satan. So if we don't think spiritual immaturity is that big a deal, and it's just something that can be outgrown in due course, this is why those commentators are going to tell you, no, this is a very urgent need, because as long as you are stuck in stage one here, you are very susceptible to listen to things that sound very biblical, but aren't actually Bible. We're not talking about things that are obviously wrong, right? Even a child can recognize things that are obviously wrong. You could ask probably our four-year-old, if he's not running around in circles and just uh, being his normal crazy self, we could stop long enough to answer a question for you. If you said, Charlie, is it good or bad to play in a busy street? Charlie, even though he's still a child, he, it's pretty obvious. He's going to tell you, okay, uh, play in the street is bad because there's cars there, and that's not where I want to be. So not all the time are these schemes necessarily so obvious where we think, oh, well, even the most spiritually mature among us would recognize uh, these sorts of things. These are the careful planning methods of Satan. Do you remember when he tempted Jesus? How did he tempt him? You remember when he takes him up on top of the temple? What he tells him to do? He says, cast yourself down. What's his reasoning? Why does he tell Jesus that he should cast himself down? Absolutely. He quotes scripture. And that, I think, is a great illustration of the careful planning and the way that Satan will try to deceive you. He will take even the scriptures and try to make you apply this particular scripture in a place where it ought not to be applied. So let's take, for example, in the modern day discussions, and I think we're safe maybe mentioning this here with, with age groups, I think we're good. Let's take the modern day discussions with the LBGTQ+. The modern discussion, I think, for the young folks, is you guys are growing up like right in the thick of these things, whereas even people, I don't perceive myself as being that much older than you guys, but even people in my age group, this was not, as prominent. This is something that has happened in my adult life, not in my life as a teenager or growing up. And even for some of you guys that were in college down there at Faulkner, since me and Kana had been down there, same thing for you guys. I guess y'all were like the first wave. So here's what happens. When I see students who will begin to, well, advocate and say, well, maybe these scriptures that speak to the sexual ethics of scripture, that say this is a man and a woman in marriage for life, and that's the only place that those types of intimate relationships are appropriate. Anything outside of that is unbiblical. What I usually see with students who begin to say, well, maybe it's not quite that strict, they're not just being, well, driven away by selfish desire or by a desire to be accepted. What they'll always mention, passages like Galatians 
6, 1 and 2. Those of you who are spiritual should bear with the failings of the weak. And if any of you have, are caught in a transgression, restore him in the spirit of gentleness. And so they'll take the scripture, but take gentleness all the way out to its extreme of we're not going to actually recognize that something in scripture is classified as sinful. So in, what's happening here would be the schemes of the devil. It is something that looks very biblical, maybe on the front end of, yeah, you need to restore someone in the spirit of gentleness. Jesus was loving. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. The people that were sinful in his day, those are the people that Jesus is eating with. So it's a very biblical concept. And I do, I do firmly believe, because there's scriptural evidence for it, that Satan can tempt us even with scripture. Much like he did, well, as he tempted Jesus himself. So spiritual maturity is going to be able to discern between these sorts of things and the inability to discern between those things is an immediate problem. It's an immediate problem for us. It's an immediate problem for any Christian. Now obviously we want to be careful about maybe some of the standards we might place on the younger crowd, but guys, even for the younger crowd, this is still just as an immediate problem for you guys as it is for the rest of us. So unfortunately, you guys aren't off the hook, <laughs> and neither are we as maybe the older crowd or maybe in the in-between crowd, wherever you might uh, think that you should be placed. And isn't it interesting in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, so we talk about the armor of God. Notice the very first thing. So in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you can be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth seems to be, well it is, the first piece of armor we have against the schemes of the devil is knowing and understanding the truth. And guess what we're supposed to do in Ephesians 4 as the church? Did you notice how we're supposed to grow if you start reading in verse 15? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. So if we want to fit together and grow as a church and get away from this dangerous state of being spiritual infants here, spiritual babies, it's going to require that we absolutely know the truth pretty well. We need to know it pretty well. Now, I'm not saying we need degrees and all these qualifications or certificates and all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying we need to be in the Word. Like we need to read our Bibles. And we need to read our Bibles regularly because it is not always easy to distinguish between something that's biblical and something that's Bible. And I debated actually putting some of these on the slide, and now I wish that I did. But we play a game every now and then with the college students in Montgomery, and I don't know, maybe we did this with you guys, where we would put a quote on the screen, and your goal is to guess whether that quote comes from the Psalms or if it comes from an Adele song. Did you guys, were y'all there for that? Or Taylor Swift? Oh, we did that here too? Okay, awesome. Um, so yeah, well then all, all, all you guys should know this then. You should be familiar with it. And we put it on the screen and you think, oh, I can very easily identify if something comes from the Psalms or comes from one of the latest pop songs on the radio. But we'd put them on the screen and inevitably it was always very funny to see who actually missed it because most of the room half the time would miss it. Because we would intentionally select 
passages from Psalms and a quote from a song that would seem like they'd fit in the other category. So a very just goofy illustration to show you, though, how easy it is to be fooled by something that seems biblical, but that's not actually Bible. And in my opinion, the best way for us to defend ourselves against those types of things is simply to read our Bibles. And I know that's not a, anything groundbreaking or like a new thing to write down and you know, go shout in the mountaintops of, oh, hey, if we had just been reading it, if we didn't know, we should read our Bibles. So I'm not, I don't perceive that I'm telling you anything that you don't already know. But maybe we are seeing a new way in which staying in the scriptures is not just a bonus in the Christian life. It's not extra credit. It's survival. It's integral to the whole thing. And we can't really have it without continued, reflective Bible reading. But I know my opinion is not the only one that counts, and that's certainly something that we read in Scripture. We're going to get to more of these things later. We're going to talk about Hebrews 4 later in the day today, so I'm going to save that one for later. But how about what, what's everybody else think? Because we have a lot of wisdom in the room. What are some other ways we can guard, or maybe some strategies for reading our Bibles even? What are some ways that we can guard against being tossed around by cunning, deceitful schemes. What do you think? We've mentioned Bible reading. So if you have any suggestions on how to stay disciplined in Bible reading or anything else. Yes, sir. What about uh, using your reason over your emotions? Or hmm. knowing the channel best for you? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And certainly, I think with the illustration we gave a moment ago, well, with all the ones we're willing to bend on, it's probably more so emotion than intellect that leads us there. So thanks, Drew. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go to that passage, actually. Let's go to uh, Galatians chapter 6. And I think when I quoted that a second ago, I accidentally gave you some of uh, Romans, or 1 Corinthians 10, actually. Uh, but here we go, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Jackie, as you were talking, I think maybe we've now seen even this is more subtle than as we were portraying it a second ago. Because right here in the same verse, there's certainly the call to restore them. So if they're, you have to recognize that they're caught in a transgression and then work to restore them. So it's not all just, well, be gentle and be overwhelmingly gentle to the point where we're not going to actually recognize they're in any transgression. So yeah, I think that's an excellent point to bring up and can show maybe just how subtle, how subtle these things can be. Yes, sir. In the business world, there's always how do you install a sense of urgency? Hmm. And the psalm, I see how they can get so subdued and let things just go. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yes, sir. 
Absolutely. Did you hear that, young folks over there? You guys hear that? I know y'all hear that all the time. But thank you, Jim. Absolutely. Very well said. And that goes for us older folks, too, by the way. It doesn't change uh, when we get out of high school. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up, and that, I think that illustrates two, on top of what you mentioned, two other things in particular. One, I, th I think you're right, in some cases, we could be doing a better job of getting out ahead of these things, but I would guess that if you'd ask, like even our teens here and a bunch of other groups, I would guess they hear this a pretty good bit, but I do agree with you in general, we could do better as the church, for sure. I do think it illustrates just how powerful the cultural influence is and I think the influence on our on our younger crowd and maybe I mean some of the adults in the room too with if you spend a lot of time on social media or watching the news or depending on what kind of news I guess in social media you're interacting with it's just a constant push and pressure to bend and so we're much more likely to now start working our way and that's for any particular sinful thing not just this this happens with college students and drunkenness all the time. Seems like every few weeks, we're, or not every few weeks, every few semesters, the issue comes up of, well, what about this? What if, you know, we're wiggling around because the culture seems to be pushing us that way. So I think you're illustrating in particular the responsibility of the church to continue to stay strong, but also maybe to be aware that these schemes of the devil are very intelligent and they're very dangerous and we need to be very thoughtful we need to put a lot of thought into how exactly we're going to guard, especially some of our younger folks, against those sorts of things. So I'm very glad that you bring that up. I think you've illustrated some things that are worth us thinking about. Uh, one thing in particular, and I don't want to get, well, actually, maybe I'll find a way to mention that later today. Because um, I've got a little bit more of this I want to get through. So, in other places in the New Testament, we've already talked about Hebrews 5. Let's go back there one more time with the couple minutes that we have left, and I guess this will have to suffice, and we'll just summarize the rest of them. But notice what's going on in Hebrews 5 at the end of this, and I think uh, Mackenzie read earlier. In verse 14, solid food is for the mature. So mature is that same word for perfect, uh, complete, mature that you have in Ephesians, depending on what your translation says. Solid food is for those people, not for the children, for those uh, the people who have their powers of discernment trained. So these are the ones that can. They're not tossed to and fro because their powers of discernment are trained. Well, how do you think they've trained themselves? Well, by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So some of this is a skill we continue to pick up and continue to grow in. But make no mistake, there is that stage one of danger that we've got to get away from. And it's illustrated in a few other ways. And the bell is going to ring any second. So let me just give you these passages, um, and we'll go through these very quickly. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
in the first four verses of the chapter, we've got something very similar to what we just read in Hebrews about being people of the flesh, not able to handle the solid food. They have to have the milk. They are described with that same Greek word for child. So as infants in Christ in the ESV in chapter 1, they do translate it as infants there. But notice the problem here. They are earthly, fleshly kinds of people. So spiritual immaturity, yes, it is characterized by being tossed around and being uncertain and not having your powers of discernment trained. Maybe we need a lot more scripture. We need more reading and training in the scripture even. But here also we see that spiritual immaturity carries with it this element of being very worldly. And it's actually an immature thing to be very worldly. And in particular in 1 Corinthians 3, we're talking about looking for worldly wisdom is the idea. In 1 Corinthians 13, you get the word used in a similar context where Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up those sorts of things. The same uh, contrast there. The problem in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 is that the Corinthians are again being very earthly in their thinking because they're taking their spiritual gifts and assigning prominence in the church based on their gift. And he says, you're thinking the wrong way. At the end of chapter 12, I'll show you a more excellent way to consider these things. And the last thing, I know the, the bell has already rung. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, very clearly identifies your time as a spiritual child as the time that you are enslaved to those things that by nature are not gods or the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. So spiritual immaturity is not just aimed at how, it has nothing to do with like your intelligence or uh, that kind of smarts. It has everything to do with, if we have more time for the end of this class, we would have talked about a little bit in Proverbs of what it means to live wisely, what it means to recognize situations for what they are, and how to best apply God's wisdom to those different situations. And essentially that's what we're working towards, but we are working towards the completion of that. So there is coming a point where we will all be made perfectly complete and perfectly mature. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, in the sermon here in just a few moments. But let's close out with a prayer. God, we come to you this morning. And again, we are so thankful to be able to be here, to be gathered today at Asheville Road. God, we're so thankful for the church here, for the impact that this church has on the community and the impact that this church has on growing the individual members of it. We're thankful for the elders, for Drew, for Eli, for the work that they do to keep this church a place where biblical growth is happening, where your name is being glorified. So I pray that you will continue to bless them and their work here in Leeds. And be with us now as we're about to enter into worship. And it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.